I love the ocean and have been attracted to the ocean since I was very young and have wanted to understand it and be on it. I spend a lot of time at sea, sailing around with sperm whales. And I'm on my boat and I watch them when they come to the surface. And they're clearly very social. They depend on each other to live their lives, to learn how to behave in the whale world. A whale isn't a whale without the other whales around it, who it lives with, who it depends on, whom it learns from. And as I, w I look out at them, I now realize that that group of whales that we are watching has a particular culture. It has a particular way of doing things. So these whales behave very differently from another clan who may be just over the horizon there. And I find this, this contrast totally fascinating. The whales are a vital part of the ocean. And they, for me, are a, a reason to go into the ocean. And they are a route to understanding the ocean because they have to use the ocean to live. This is Oceans Life Underwater, a podcast series all about the oceans and the mind-blowing life within them. I'm Hannah Stitfel. I'm a zoologist, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster. And I want to learn everything I can about the world's oceans. In this episode, whales. It's very hard to control anything in the ocean. Everything's fluid, it's three-dimensional. I think this may be partially behind why they appear to have such peaceable societies. A lot of people know that the blue whale is the biggest animal that's ever existed. But did you know that whales have culture? They have different ways of doing things which they've learned from each other. This is the aspect of their lives that I find most fascinating. This is Ocean's Life Underwater, Episode 3. I'm really excited to be talking with Hal Whitehead, who's joining me from somewhere in a studio in Nova Scotia, Canada. Now, Hal is a biologist whose work studying whales and their inner lives since the 1980s has dramatically changed how we interact with and view these enormous animals today. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Hal. Hello. Hello, Hannah. <laughs> How are you? I do love your shirt that you're wearing. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> it's very on brand. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's a nice navy blue with uh, with white whales on it. Very nice, Hal. Yeah, sperm whales too. <laughs> very good. So let's get into it. So how many different kinds of whale are there? What's the biggest and what's the smallest for our listeners that may not may not know? Well, it uh, as usual, it depends on what you call a whale. But as most of us call a whale, there may be 30 or 40 species of whale. The biggest is the blue whale, biggest animal that's ever lived. And the smallest, hmm, maybe the pygmy right whale. Well, little by whale standards, still a hell of a lot bigger than us, um, a little animal that we know rather little about. Can you describe to us what a cetacean is? So whales versus dolphins. 
So the cetaceans are a group of uh, mammals whose closest uh, relatives are things like hippos. And they gradually made their way into the ocean um, 40, 50 million years ago. First just shallow waters, and then they got into deeper and deeper waters. Then it's about 30 million years ago, they made two major adaptations. They developed two wonderful attributes. One lot developed baleen, fingernail-type material, which grows down from the upper jaw and forms a sieve. And that allowed those whales to sieve out small creatures from the water, plankton, small fish, things like that. And they can get a huge quantity of food in very short time. A blue whale, the biggest of them, you know, several tons of food in one gulp. Pretty amazing. So that's one kind. At the same time, another group, more or less the same time, developed another wonderful adaptation, which was sonar. So the ability to make a sound, a particularly well-adapted sound that travels through the water, bounces off something, usually something they might want to eat, and <laughs> comes back with enough information so that they can tell, yeah, that is worth eating or chasing or something. So those are the toothed whales, and they include all the dolphins, the porpoises, killer whales, pilot whales, and the biggest of them all, the sperm whale. And I've watched your TED talk about whale culture, which is absolutely incredible. Can you explain to our listeners a bit about what whale culture is or so far that we understand it to this day? Yeah, well, first culture and culture, there's lots and lots of definitions out there. But um, the one that makes most sense to most biologists anyway who think about it and quite a lot of other people is its behavior or ideas that we learn from others and then pass on so that a whole bunch of us do the same thing because we've learned you know from each other or from the same place and if you think of culture like that there's quite a lot of whale behavior which is cultural we had been studying sperm whales um, off the Galapagos Islands, off Ecuador, since 1985. We got to know uh, some of the, what we call social units, which are sort of like family groups of sperm whales that live in those waters. And uh, what we were interested in is whether different social units had different dialects. And um, they communicate using patterns of clicks, which sound a bit like Morse code. So click, 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 or click, 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 click. And what we found, um, there were a bunch of the social units who actually sounded pretty much the same. And they went click, 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 or click, 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 click. So a bunch of clicks, regularly spaced, kind of boring. And there were another bunch of social units who went click, 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 or click, 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 click. And both these kinds of social units were off the Galapagos. And if a social unit 
was making the regular clicks. It kept making the regular clicks over the years that we studied them and vice versa with the um, plus ones. Now, when we're at C, we tend not just to see one social unit, but we see a group, which may be two, three, four, up to maybe seven or eight social units all going around together. And what we found was that even though the regular and plus one social units were using the same waters off the Galapagos, the regular social units only formed groups with other regular and the plus ones only with other plus ones. So the only explanation was that the sperm whales were learning their dialect and learning uh, who they associate with from their mums and the other members of their social unit. And we found other things like when we were following the regular social units, they wiggled around a lot. They go this way for a few hours and then that way and back again and so on. Whereas when we were following the plus ones, they tend to go for quite long periods in straight lines or fairly straight lines. They organized their babysitting differently because the females babysit each other's calves when they make long dives to catch food. And so... You know, the, the, these clans weren't just about dialect. They were about a whole range of behavior. And then other people started to find pairs of clans in sperm whales in different places, in Japan, in Brazil, in uh, Chile, in Mauritius, in the Indian Ocean, in the Caribbean. In the biggest study, uh, another colleague of mine, Taylor Hirsch, put together recordings from right across the Pacific, and found seven clans in the whole Pacific, about seven. Wow. Seven clans in the Pacific with maybe 150,000 females in the Pacific means 20,000 females per clan. So this is a big, large-scale social structure. Also large in spatial scale because there's one clan, the short clan, found all across the Pacific, from Japan to Chile, from British Columbia to New Zealand. Whereas there's another clan, much more restricted, we've just found off in, in waters off Ecuador. It, uh, do you think, right, do you think it could be a matter of the different clans having different accents and still being able to talk to each other? Like me originally being from Essex, being able to speak to somebody from Scotland, we can still understand each other. Or do you think the further that the clans are away, it's a completely different language? I mean, do we know that? I mean, will we ever know that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I think, um, and I'm not sure about this, but I think maybe language is the wrong way to think about this. And we, they do seem to be what we call symbolic markers. So we humans use symbolic markers to mark our groups. So, for instance, two football teams in the same city, say Manchester, for instance, use contrasting colors, right? So it's very clear if you're walking down the streets of Manchester which this group of uh, fans supports and which that group supports, and they tend to stay a bit away from one another. <laughs> so, you know, they could understand each other if they want, went out and talked to each other, and maybe in another context they would. But, you know, on on Saturday morning as they're heading for the game... They don't want to talk to each other. <laughs> Right. And um, so I see it as more like that. And, and, and actually, Taylor Hirsch's work suggested the same sort of thing with the sperm clan. So clans 
which use the same areas, which overlap, tend to have more distinct codas than clans, maybe one's off Japan and the other's off uh, off Chile, and so very unlikely to meet. And apart from different whale species size, do they have different cultures dependent on the whale species? So, for example, is a sperm whale's culture different to a humpback's or a pygmy's? Yeah, a lot of it depends on the social system. So some of the whales, in particular the larger whales with teeth like sperm whales, killer whales, pilot whales, live in very tight family-based societies. So a female probably stays in the same, same group as her mother while they're both alive. So they're spending their lives together. And uh, in killer whales, the young males do as well. So um, in these species, there are these very tight social structures, which are incredibly important to the whales. In contrast, uh, an animal like the humpback whale, which has a much less tight structured family society. So each individual will have a bunch of friends who it spends time with, but it sees others and so on. And it's much more loosey-goosey. In that situation, the animals are learning from a much wider range of other animals. The cultures can span a whole ocean. So um, in blue whales or humpback whales, all the blue whales in a particular ocean, all the humpback whales in a particular part of an ocean sing the same song, but it's a different song from the ones in the next ocean. And tell us about the closest interaction you've had with with a whale. Well, I, I don't particularly want to get super close to them. I, I, I want to see the whales interacting with other whales, not with us. But um, I, I study a, a species here off Nova Scotia called the northern bottlenose whale, which is a, a rather strange and poorly understood animal of the deep waters who dives very deep for squid. They're also very social and Unlike um, a lot of these deep water whales, they're very curious. There was one time we were out there about 100 miles off the coast here in an underwater canyon where these animals live. And um, we get a lot of our data by recording their sounds. And we do this through what's known as a hydrophone, which is an underwater microphone. And ours is on the end of a long 100-meter cable. Um, and the worst thing that can happen is that this hydrophone can get wrapped around the propeller on the boat. Oh, no. And it did. <laughs> so I jumped in <laughs> to try and <laughs> unwrap good. it. And I'm, I'm pretty near the world's worst swimmer, so this was a, uh, <laughs> not, not, not an efficient procedure. Anyway, I was <laughs> taking breaths and diving down for about 12 seconds and unwrap a teeny bit and come up do a bit more. And then I just looked behind me. And there were two of these wonderful creatures just about two, three meters away, just watching everything I was doing. So I think that's the closest I've got. 
I find it quite interesting that you're not one of the... You've said just then you're not the world's best swimmer, but you spend a lot of time sailing and in and around the water. <laughs> yeah, I love being on a boat. <laughs> I think being on a boat's the very best thing, I think. But um, I like to stay on the boat. Yeah. I'll take a swim from time to time, especially if the water's warm. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Best, best to be on the boat. Best to be on the boat. Okay, note taken. <laughs> so can you, for our listeners at home, tell us about who Roger Payne was? Sure, yeah. So um, Roger Payne was uh, a biologist who'd done some extraordinary work about the interactions between moths and bats and you know, how, how the bats try to get the moths and so on. And um, he became fascinated by whales. But this is in the 1960s. And uh, he um, went out there to see whales and to listen to whales because sound was his thing. He was a musician as well as a biologist. And he heard these extraordinary sounds from the humpback whales um, off Bermuda. And he got other recordings. And he analyzed those recordings. And he realized that these humpback songs were songs in the same sense that we humans have songs or birds have songs. They, ha they were, ha had a repetitive structure. They had verses and notes and themes and so on. They were very complicated songs possibly the most complex songs in the animal world. They were also extremely beautiful. So Roger put out a really, with his colleague Scott McVeigh, put out a really important paper in a major scientific journal describing the songs. And all the scientists were, wow, this is extraordinary. He also put out, this was in 1970, a long playing record, which was the media in those days, of the songs. And this went to the general public, and they went, oh, wow! And uh, I, I can remember at that time, because I was in university, sort of lying around on, in my, uh, my room on, on my back, listening to these extraordinary <laughs> sounds. And this was a large part of, um, became a large part of, 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 of what... Um, what changed our attitudes about whales? In the 1960s, the whales were sources of oil and margarine. That's mm. what they were. By the end of the 1970s, for a lot of people, they had become beings who sing. And, um, and, and a lot of this was due to the songs. And at the same time, Organizations like Greenpeace were highlighting the extraordinary status of the whales. Where, if you look at the late 1960s and how many whales there were in the world and how, how that trajectory was going, it looked like in about 15 years there would be no more whales. We were killing them at that rate. 
And then in, in what I see as one of the great conservation stories, in the 1970s, we humans got together globally and pretty much stopped that. So the whale populations which were heading towards zero leveled out in the late 1970s, and then whaling was pretty much stopped in the 1980s. And at least some of them, including the humpback whale, have rebuilt in the decades since then. And, you know, as humans, we should be proud of that. We can sometimes get it right. And that um, that record that Roger Payne put out, wasn't it the biggest selling nature record to date? I mean, I can't, to be honest, I can't think of any others <laughs> that have been bought out. So maybe that's why. But it was a huge deal, wasn't it? It was a huge deal. And actually, that wasn't all Roger did. In the 1960s, scientists like Jane Goodall were starting to treat uh, wild animals as individuals rather than just numbers or, you know, nice packages of cool physiology. And uh, she started giving them names and looking at their social systems and, and looking at them in detail. And Rogers said, maybe we can do the same with whales. And he started um, studies on right whales in Argentina, where that was his emphasis, getting to know whales as individuals. And that was another major bit of pioneering work that he did. It influenced a lot of us. And, you know, our study, the studies I've been doing on sperm whales as individuals, you know, have that as a sort of uh, driving factor. Whale song. So is it all whales that sing or is it just humpbacks? No, uh, they don't all sing. Only baleen whales sing. These are the ones with the, uh, the, the filters from the top of the jaw. But most of them do sing. The humpback whale song is way more complicated than any of the others. But some of the others are really interesting such as the bowhead whale, a big baleen whale of the Arctic waters. Who sings quite complex, but much shorter songs and very variable. As um, a bowhead, whale, a bowhead sing, song scientist put it, uh, Humpbacks may be more like a symphony, but bowheads more like jazz. <laughs> and then there's animals like uh, blue whales and fin whales, which make songs so low we can't hear them, but they are songs, and they're quite simple, and they can travel probably thousands of kilometers underwater. So there's a great variety, and there's a few baleen whales that do not sing, like right whales. Um, and as far as we know, none of the uh, toothed whales sing in the sense of producing a repetitive series of vocalizations, like a human song or a bird song. And why do they sing? Well, that's it. We don't know. <laughs> uh, we do know that the singers are, most, are all, as far as we know, males. They sing mostly in the breeding season, which is the winter, but they also sing a bit in the autumn when they're on their feeding grounds, cold water areas where there's lots of food, and in the spring after they return to the um, feeding grounds. 
as well as on the migrations between the feeding grounds and the breeding grounds. We assume it's something to do with mating, but no, I don't think we know. We don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either, Hal. <laughs> but we love to hear it. <laughs> and from studying whale culture, is there something that you found in whale culture that you have become particularly attached to or something from whale culture that has taught you more about yourself? One thing... Um we've actually never, almost never noticed, is any aggression among the sperm whales. Now, these are huge animals with massive mouths, big teeth, but there's almost no sign of aggression. Maybe a little bit in the big breeding males. I once saw what was almost like a sumo match where these two huge creatures went for each other for a few seconds and then one gave up and um, <laughs> went off. And, uh, but otherwise, none. And, and that seems general. You don't see any of the aggression that you see uh, with many non-human primates, mm. with baboons and chimpanzees and so on, uh, as well as, um, you know, with other terrestrial animals like say, uh, wolves and so on. And I think a, a lot of this may come down to the structure of the ocean. It's very hard to control anything in the ocean. It's, it's you know, everything's fluid, it's three-dimensional. It's really hard to say, this is mine and you're not coming near it. Mm. I think this may be partially behind why they appear to have such peaceable societies and um, why they also seem to have uh, certainly the sperm whales that I study seem to have more um, democratic societies. So I've watched a group of sperm whales, maybe 40 animals, you know, as they move around the ocean. And this is really important to them because food is not evenly distributed. They've got to go to the right places and they've got to make good decisions about where to go. But how do they do this? In um, elephants which have in some ways quite similar societies to sperm whales, there is a matriarch, usually an older female, who is the big boss and says, off we go, here we go. So that we were kind of looking for that, but there's, we find very little sign of that. Uh, instead, it seems much more democratic. Um, they're going to make a turn and a few of them go that way and a few go this way and in. Mm, and, oh, well, maybe, and so on. <laughs> and I've watched them take over an hour to make a 90-degree turn. <laughs> you know, like democracy itself, it's slow, it's messy, but it tends to produce the right answer. Hmm. And I think that's a nice message for me and for us that, you know, despite the problems, we, we need our democracies. Be more whale. Be more well. Be more well. In that respect. There we go. Yeah. 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 Nicely put. I'm going to get you, get you another shirt with that on it. Be more well. <laughs> so before we get back to Hal, there's something cool I wanted to share with you. 
Right now, there's a boat bobbing around in the Indian Ocean with a team of researchers on board. Now, one of those is a woman called Asha DeVos. She's one of the world's top whale experts, and she's leading pioneering research into the whales of the Indian Ocean, as she wanted to share it with you. So we're out on this scientific expedition, and we're doing both visual and acoustic surveys of whales and dolphins in this really interesting part of the Indian Ocean that I don't think many people have ever had the chance to explore. I'm born and raised Sri Lankan, beautiful tropical island in the middle of the northern Indian Ocean. Uh, it would seem like a really natural pathway to become a marine biologist. But when I told people at age 18 that that's what I wanted to do, most Sri Lankans were really confused. We didn't realize we had so much of abundance of life in our waters. Our assumptions were based on the very little knowledge that we had. And so for me, I started this journey to really become a marine biologist, but take all that knowledge back to Sri Lanka, make sure I was establishing the field, making space for others, allowing people to fall in love with the ocean, just as I, I, I always dreamt I would. So out in our waters in the Indian Ocean, there's a range of threats that these whales and dolphins face. Uh, one of the big ones, certainly off Sri Lanka, is ship strike, where they get hit by ships and get killed. They can get entangled in fishing nets that might be floating freely. There's also all kinds of pollution in our oceans. We think always about plastic pollution, but noise pollution is a huge problem for animals that navigate their world using their ears. And also in the Indian Ocean, in the last six decades, there's research to show that we've lost about 20% of the, of the phytoplankton on our surface of our oceans. About 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, that's one in every second breath we breathe, is produced by plants in the ocean. There's so much that comes out of the largest ecosystem on our planet. So it is really important for all of us across the world, no matter where we live, no matter whether our lives are deeply intertwined with the ocean or not, to recognize that protecting the ocean is protecting ourselves. And now, back to Hal. Talk to me about whaling. I mean, it's one of the more positive stories we've had over the last few decades, but when did it start and how did we get to the point where it's amazingly almost completely been phased out except Japan and Iceland? Yeah, it, it's an incredible story, whaling. It, uh, it goes back, well, probably into prehistory, learning how to kill uh, whales who came very close to the coast and bringing them in and using the products. So whales are huge animals. So for a small community, coastal community, it, it's like a windfall. That was a, always a very small-scale operation. But that all changed with industrial whaling. Industrial whaling probably started, I don't know, in the Middle Ages in Europe, in the Basque country between France and Spain. They were killing right whales close to the coast. They killed a lot. They used them mainly for oil, made a lot of money, and they started moving around and they wiped out those right whales, they would go to other parts of the North Atlantic and, and kill them too. It grew and grew. In 1712, people from Nantucket in the United States started industrial whaling for sperm whales, and that became a huge industry, partly because sperm whales have better oil than the other whales, and there were a lot of them. They're all around the world. 
And so the whalers from Nantucket and other ports in New England, as well as Western Europe, started going further and further around the world. They'd go into the Pacific and Indian Oceans. They would discover islands which had never been seen by these Europeans before. They would bring diseases. They would wipe out other native animals like uh, giant tortoises. So whaling had a huge impact, not only on the whales, but also on a lot of other things. But by the end of the 1800s, whaling was um, becoming less lucrative. They'd killed a lot of whales. The discovery of petroleum meant there were other sources of oil. So whaling was, wasn't doing too great until they discovered ways to make it much more effective. And this was largely done by Sven Foyn, a Norwegian, who um, started, instead of using sail-powered whaling boats and road catcher boats, he started using steam-powered whaling boats, which could go much faster in much worse weather. He started using harpoon guns rather than people throwing harpoons. So by the beginning of the 20th century, industrial whaling was far, far more efficient than the whaling of the Nantucketers and so on. And there were a bit of a pause for the two world wars when we were too busy killing each other to kill quite so many whales. But otherwise, it just went on and got bigger and bigger. And it was all over the world by a lot of different countries and... Um, it couldn't be controlled. And in the 1960s, it was very clear that the whale populations were in very bad shape. And, uh, yeah, the end of the 60s, that's when Roger Payne's record came out. <laughs> <laughs> Our attitudes started changing. Greenpeace were out there, you know, challenging the whalers. And um, things changed. It is, it is crazy, really. I mean, those those ships, I mean, I've seen photographs of them the, with the big steam-powered ships with the, you know, the harpoon guns. I mean, they are just, you know, they are killing machines, aren't they? And yeah. if you think if everybody around the world are using them and nobody really has any interest in protecting whales, I mean, they don't stand a chance against them. Some of the photographs I've seen that are just awful to look back on now. It's, the whales just, they just didn't stand a chance against us. They didn't. And even though by the 1960s there were population biologists who were looking at the numbers and saying, this is awful. We have a huge, huge problem here. Of course no one listened, as they don't today, as people warn about what we're doing to other kinds of wildlife and the environment generally. But luckily in the 1970s, our conception of whales changed. That was pretty much it for whaling, which was fantastic. So basically, we need someone to bring out a shark record. Yeah, yeah? I've often thought that. <laughs> Thinking any of our listeners out there that want to uh, want to break into the industry, I think that that's your that's your niche there. Make a shark record. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I read recently about what they've been doing in Dominica, establishing the world's first ever sperm whale reserve. Now, how significant is this for the protection of these animals? Well, I think it's, it, it's very significant. Um, 
So I've tried to look at sperm whales around the world and how they're doing. Now, like the other big whales, they haven't been whaled much at all over the last um, 40 years or so. We would expect their populations to come back, but sperm whales have extraordinarily low rates of, of producing babies. So each female only produces one every five years, and there's no twins. So that means their populations cannot increase fast. In the areas where humans have a much bigger footprint, it doesn't look good for them. Their populations seem to be declining, certainly not increasing. So places like the Mediterranean, like the Gulf of Mexico, and the waters of the Eastern Caribbean around Dominica. So off Dominica, and um, I've spent quite a bit of time there, it's a wonderful place. And the sperm whales there are particularly splendid because uh, my colleague Shane Giro has got to know them individually in the same way that Roger Payne was hoping people would do way back when he started his work in the 60s. And Shane does know all those individuals. So when I'm out there and I see a sperm whale, you know, they all look pretty much the same. They look a bit like logs to me in the water. <laughs> but Shane notes that is so-and-so, and she's the daughter of so-and-so, and she likes doing this, and so on. And the whole history of her social world and her preferences and her personality. And it's pretty wonderful. But you know, that, those populations are under threat because it is a part of the world that's used a lot by us. There are a lot, a lot of shipping, including huge cruise ships that go through there. Mm. There are fast ferries. There's swimming with the whales off Dominica, which was uh, fairly far out of control when I was last there. And all this is, is a threat to the whales. So um, this proclamation, as I understand it, of the uh, sperm whale sanctuary off Dominica looks like it will reduce those threats. It will regulate where the cruise ships go, how fast they go. It will regulate the people swimming with the whales uh, so that they're not being swum with all day long. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good thing. I'm really pleased and, and congratulate the people who worked on this, especially the people of Dominica who, who had to do it themselves. And what is your next project? What are you working on now, can you say, or what are you working on in the future, near future? Well, as far as, um, you know, going out to sea goes, which is my favourite bit, um, we're... Apart um, from the fact that you can't swim. Yeah, but no, I'll stay on my boat. <laughs> I'll stay on my boat. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I can just about swim. <laughs> I'm, I'm not very good at it. Um, We'll be studying these uh, northern bottlenose whales here off Nova Scotia and further north off, off Newfoundland. We're interested in them just as wonderful creatures, but also in how they're dealing with us like most creatures. So the ones here off no Nova Scotia, there's only about maybe 160 of them because they were heavily affected by whaling in, into the 1960s. So when I was growing up in England... The, the pets in our family were probably eating northern bottlenose whale. You know, that's what they were being used for. And they, you know, they, they get stuck in fishing gear and so on. But luckily, their main habitat is now a 
protected area, so there's no fishing there. So they seem to be doing a bit better, so that's great. The next population off Newfoundland is an area of huge oil and gas uh, development, and I'm, I'm very worried for them, so we'll go up there and see what's going on. I, I don't know, but uh, it's concerning. Well, Hal, thank you very much for talking to us today. I know our listeners would have got a lot out of the conversation we've just had. It's absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Keep up the brilliant work that you do with Wales, and I hope you wear that shirt most days because it's fabulous. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) I'm just off to my class and I'll wear it in there. Okay. If they notice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you. It's lovely talking to you. Next week, we're going south to the Southern Ocean and Antarctica. But if you want something else in the meantime, check this out. Remember the story we heard at the end of the first episode? The research ship that set sail on an expedition to the Galapagos Islands? Well, we've had an update from one of the people on board the Arctic Sunrise. She's called us near. So my name is Usnia Granger, and right now the Arctic Sunrise is um, on its way to the Galapagos. We are uh, surrounded by gorgeous, beautiful, tropical water and weather. Um, It's sunny, I think we're uh, expecting some squalls to come our way the next two days, so we're enjoying these last few moments of sun. So right now on board, everyone is maintaining a certain amount of vigilance or situational awareness because uh, we're on cetacean watches. We're always looking for what wildlife is around us and you never know what you're going to find. Uh, a couple of days ago, we saw pilot whales, a whole pot of pilot whales. Um, I know that they caught a marlin. The scientists right now as we speak are going through uh, that footage. So we're really excited to see what they come up with. So now we'll go east for... Last night was a special night. Um, It's sailor tradition that when you cross the equator, um, there is a ceremony that happens, an equator crossing ceremony. And I can't say too much because there's some people present who haven't been a part of it and it's a secret until you go through it. Um, But it's really, really, really special and a beautiful thing to be a part of. Uh, And so we crossed last night at 1.30 in the morning. Here's that booby again. This morning was also really, really beautiful. Uh, there was a whole bunch of people up for the sunrise, um, people taking pictures of other people taking pictures of the gorgeous. It's just nice when we can come together at these special, calm moments in between operations. This episode was brought to you by Greenpeace and Crowd Network. It's hosted by me, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster, Hannah Stitfull. It's produced by Anna Stauffenberg, and our executive producer is Steve Jones. Editing and sound design by Anna Stauffenberg. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music, archive courtesy of Greenpeace. The team at Crowd Network is Catalina Nogueira, Archie Biltcliffe, George Sampson, and Robert Wallace. The team at Greenpeace is James Hansen, Flora Havesi, Alex Yallop, Janae Mayer and Alice Lloyd-Hunter. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week. <laughs>